welcome to another brand new episode of Fantastic Women and Where to Find Them podcast. Podcasting here is Priscilla and I'm here finally, literally in front of me, seeing her beautiful face, mm-hmm. Tracy. Hi everyone, I am in physical distance from yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, we're still social distances, but we are on the same room for yeah. like, how, how long? We're Four in months? 3D. Yeah. We're in 3D. We are in 3D, ready to break the fourth wall, metaphorically, yeah. I guess. But we are thrilled to be here presenting our episode number 10. Can you believe it? I know, it's exciting. And we are enjoying cocktails. And speaking of cocktails... This is my time to reveal, uh, I'm on cocktail duty, so I am revealing the cocktail that is related to my amazing woman. But before we do that, Trey, do you want to tell us how does uh, does it work with the podcast? Yeah, so Priscilla really likes women. I do. I really like women. Yes. And we love hearing stories about women. And unfortunately, they're not as widespread as stories about men. So... Mm. Every episode, Priscilla brings a story about a fantastic woman from somewhere around the world. Yes. From the past or present, as do I. And I bring a woman in the fantastic woman and their story. And we don't know who the other person's story is going to be about. So it's always a lovely surprise. Mm -hmm. And we also have a cocktail that's thematically related to one of those women. And usually Priscilla um, brings someone from the past and I would bring yes. someone from the present just the way it That's works right. out. But this time it's Freaky Friday, folks. Yes, we did a bit of a switcheroo at the moment. So yeah, like Trey said, usually I will be the one who will bring um, a woman from the past. And Trey will bring someone who is doing amazing stuff or, you know, she's accomplished something in present time towards mm-hmm. the future but this time we decided that oh joe it's still a surprise she doesn't know who i'm going to talk no. about neither i know what who is she going to talk about uh we decided well i want to tell her hey i have this amazing woman who is doing things right now and it's very it's a very topical subject so i want to bring her to the table and she said that's fantastic because the woman who i want to talk mm-hmm. about she's no longer with us so it's it's a way of our yeah, our, yeah us. it worked out well. Mm-hmm. So so episode ten, me yes. and Priscilla are in person. Yes, live coming to your eardrums, live together in each other's eardrums, and we are talking about fantastic women yes. around the world, past and present. And I'm so excited! This is our first time. Like even though we've been doing this now for the tenth time, yeah, this is our first time recording together. Like yeah. again, doing so being responsible, still being the social distance, but we are together and that is fantastic because I, I was telling Trey when I was coming by uh, at the door because we were recording in her house I told her I finally can see your full body yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to sound like a creep but I was like I can see your full body now and I was wearing pants yeah exactly yeah, yeah. you're not sure any other time yeah time. I, I honestly don't know I can only yeah. see literally just your from your neck to your head and that's it yeah but the same with you you can really for all you know I'm like pulling a Winnie the Pooh you know yeah well it's, it's, it's a look <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's something that is very popular nowadays considering that we're still social distancing. We're still in lockdown in Ireland as in many other countries around the world. So anyway, let's not digress any further. I'm just going to introduce this really refreshing, lovely cocktail, summer mm-hmm. cocktail, which by the way, uh, in relation to the episode we have uh, last week, the episode number nine, um, this one can also be enjoyed with or without alcohol. So this is honestly a very simple yet very refreshing 
melon uh, spritz cocktail. Mm -hmm. So the reason why, well, basically the key ingredient in this cocktail is melon. Like it has to be fresh melon, cantaloupe in this case, with um, some mint, some cucumbers for garnish if you like, ice, and uh, gin, if, like the cocktail in here will be gin, but like I said before, the key ingredient will be melon. And you top all, you put that in the shaker, and then once you pour that uh, with the melon syrup that we did, uh, you top it up with some seltzer water, and that's pretty much your cocktail. Mm. So basically, this is, like I said, it's just a simple melon uh, spritz cocktail. The reason why I'm bringing this uh, type of cocktail to the table and in a way it's related to my woman. It's not really directly related to my woman, but who the people where my woman belong, oh, which okay. are the Uyghur people. Ah, so, that is yeah, topical. It's very, very topical. And look, I know that there is just trying to digress again. There's a lot of things going on right now in the world. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's because the fact that we are in lockdown there's not really a lot to do other than reading the news, mm -hmm. checking what's on social media, but being responsible with what you share and what you read. Mm -hmm. um, I was debating a lot about what to talk for this episode because uh, I'm going to talk about Uyghur people and this woman who I'm going to talk right now. But I cannot also ignore what's happening in Turkey, that yeah. black and white challenge who I, that I actually participated thinking that, oh, it's just for empowering women. But the reality is it's not really about empowering women. It's... Um, Let's not bury the fact that this challenge is about acknowledging the atrocities that are happening yeah. in Turkey. So I just wanted to digress a little bit just for people to know this is one of the many things that are happening. Yeah. A lot of things are happening as well in Kashmir. A lot of like it, with the people, what the uh, Indian uh, government is doing yeah. uh, is horrendous. And uh, by the way, I'm talking about the government, not the people, just mm -hmm. to put that in, in perspective. But so... Now going back to my woman, I am going to talk about a woman who hasn't, for someone, it's not what she did in the past, but what she is doing now in present time towards the future. I'm going to talk about um, an activist who is very famous, not because of herself yet, but because I'm going to talk about a man in here as well, which is kind of like the twist. She is in a way her father's daughter. I'm going to talk about Jahar Ilam. So Jahar Ilam, she for many, many people wouldn't know about her that much because she is starting to have a more of a voice at the moment. Jahar Ilam, she's a 25 year old Uyghur woman who basically in 2013, she was leaving Beijing with her father. Her father is a very well world renowned scholar. His name is Ilam Toti. Sorry, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name, his name correctly. Ilam Toti, Ilam Toti, sorry, is a very well renowned economist and political activist and scholar from Beijing. He actually wasn't born in Beijing. He was born in, uh, in a small uh, province in Ashtur, Xinjiang. Xinjiang, although it's part of the Chinese territory, it is not, it's from, it's in the far northwest of China, which is a independent republic mm -hmm. because that belongs to the Uyghur people among other uh, ethnic minorities, mm -hmm. such as I think there is the Turkish, Muslim Turkish uh, minority. Uh, there is also a minority from Kazakhstan. But basically, this is completely separated from China. Even though it's in the territory, they have their own language, their own government, their own 
uh, political system, beliefs, and needless to say, their religion. Their religion in the vast majority is Muslim. Mm -hmm. So basically, I am going to talk, this is going to be not only a switcheroo, but at the same time, I really want to talk about what's happening with the women in there. Like, needless to say, not only women, but all the, the, the people yes, in the there, people. they are suffering. They are suffering, and what this woman is doing at the moment is she's fighting endlessly to release her father but also at the same time to spread the word mm -hmm. of what's happening at, at that time in those there's no way to make up or embellish it they are concentration camps yeah. regarding of what the chinese government is saying that these are re-education camps that's that's a blatant lie yeah. it's a concentration camp and what they're doing is appalling and awful especially to towards the uyghur women mm -hmm. so just to give a, a little bit of information of how jahar ilam is as i was mentioning before uh, in 2013, her story in the way that we are starting to know or that you can Google about her, and I'm going to definitely share on the footnotes, her story starts when she was 18 years of age. She was leaving Beijing with her father, Ilan Toti, this scholar I was mentioning. Um, they were leaving because the University of Indiana in the United States, he was uh, inviting Ilan Toti to be a visiting scholar, and at the same time for Jahar to do her uh, her studies or her college in yeah. there. So they were so scared because um, even though they live in Beijing, they were Uyghur people because they are proud to be Uyghur people. So Uyghur people, uh, aside from what I'm going to also bring about what's going on in the concentration camps, they are all, almost for the rest of their life, they're in, in like constant, constant vigilance. Like I think they were saying when I was reading as well and I was watching as well videos about this is that right now what's happening with their uh with their society or with these people is basically they're in constant surveillance 24 hours it's the most surveilled community in the entire world like mm -hmm. nobody's watching as much as what the chinese government is doing to them so why this was again back in 2013 they were so afraid of you know the police going to cut them for reasons that Honestly, they shouldn't be. Just for um, existing. Exa just for existing, just for being who they are and what they are talking to and what they are representing and protecting. So they were leaving in 2013 and they left in the middle of the night. They were able to go to the Beijing airport, uh, about to, uh, you know, depart to go to United States. Um, when they were in, uh, about, about to cross border control, they apprehended her father. They didn't let him go. So... There is, uh, as I said, I'm talking again about uh, Ilam Toti. He's a world-renowned. He has received many awards. And sadly, nowadays, he's still receiving awards that Jahar is accepting them on his behalf. I'm going to share, and what I watched just recently is in the Geneva Conference in uh, February 21st, 20, 2020, she was presenting this speech and she was telling the story about her father and what happened when they were in the airport. And she was just saying, my dad just pushed me away. He literally pushed me because he knew that if I stole there any longer, they wouldn't even let me board the plane. Yeah. And he was telling her, just go, go look around you. This is not this is no life for you. Do you really want to live in constant surveillance? Do you really want to, you know, be afraid for the rest of your life, not be able to express yourself? Just go. Mm -hmm. Go and get a better education and speak about the truth. Speak about your people. So at that time she was able to leave the country because uh, there were people even in there that they were like trying to send when she was able to flew uh Beijing, there were still people trying to bring her back. Yeah. Um so that was in 2013. And when that happened, Ilan was not really 
um, apprehended. He was just not, you know, forbidden to fly. To leave, but yeah. unfortunately, he was under house arrest for 11 months. So he was not able to, like, they, they stopped in Beijing. They br brought him back to his house and he was not able to leave for 11 months. So unfortunately, that back in 2014, they, like, officially apprehended for separatism charges. Oh, um, for people who don't know, um, separatism charges in China are you can be sentenced for life or death or death. That's literally the, the sentence in there. So Ilan uh, Toti, that's how it was. And Jahar, she has been doing numerous interviews because as I said, she wants to spread the word. Mm -hmm. She's saying uh, to this day, even when she was presenting the award, like accepting the award, sorry, she says, I honestly don't know if my dad is alive. Oh, Can you imagine living and you don't know if your dad is alive? Mm. Um, she said that when he was under house arrest and she was luckily enough able to flew, you know, flee the country and now she was safe in the States. She was mm -hmm. able to be a student in that university. And her, she was still getting in touch with her father and her father was, look, just concentrating your studies. Yeah. And she will narrate that even when I knew that he was under house arrest, um, I, he only wanted to talk about like, like, light subjects. Like, are you able, are you eating enough? Are you making friends? How's your, how are you doing yeah. with your English? I wanted to be strong, like, because Uyghur girls are strong mm -hmm. and I wanted to represent that. So, um, that was when she was still be, was able to, you know, get in touch with him. Mm -hmm. But the last communication they had was in 2017. And she doesn't know. Unfortunately, uh, she doesn't know whether her father is alive. So I want to bring a little bit about Ilam Toti as well, because what he is doing um, is what, basically his vocation in life was to be someone who promote between the Han Chinese and the Uyghur people, like just gap, just a bridge for both yeah. societies or both cultures to, to communicate peacefully. Exactly. Peacefully. He was never aggressive because the thing is right now and what um, Jahar was saying is that they are trying to portray my father as criminal, yeah. as someone who is, you know, being uh, politicized, someone who is, you know, sharing this propaganda of Xinjiang trying to uh, make being an independent country out, outside of China. Well, that's the other way around. The only thing that his father wanted to do was to bring build this bridge for both uh, cultures to you know not collide but to communicate to be peaceful for Han Chinese to know what Uyghur people do like this is a full yeah. rich culture full of um full of life full of music their own clothing they don't look really like uh, it's not like it's stereotypical but even in documentaries they say they are different because they have their own culture mm -hmm. it's like a, a, another nation completely even though they're a part of the chinese territory you it's can an old enough culture as well it's yeah. very like it goes back to the mongolians yeah. like i was reading i went you know i went down to a rabbit hole it goes as far as the mongolians and it's so merged with uh the turkish muslim the yeah. kazakhstan it's it's um like it's a myriad of Oh. Very multifaceted. Exactly. Something. And there are Uyghur people are like in many places around the world, not only in China. In Xinjiang, I think what from what I understand, they are almost 50% of the population. There are 12 yeah. million Uyghur people. But th that's the vast majority of where the Uyghur people are. However, there are Uyghur people in Australia, there are Uyghur people in the States, Uyghur people in Japan, Russia as well, and in other countries. But these are the ones that they have a, you know a major concentration. So right now, when she, going back to Jahar, um, she 
wanted to, uh, do you know, she, she escaped. She was, do you know, doing her, um, I believe what she was studying in, in there was political uh, science and Euro-Asian culture, among other studies related to that field. Um, she is now 25. At first, uh, in one of the interviews I was reading that I will definitely share, she was so scared. She was so scared. She didn't want to do anything uh, other than being in touch with her father. Her father gave her specific instructions, you know, live your life, be happy, be happy at the fullest, complete your studies. Yeah. The most important is for you to be a strong, like knowledgeable woman who can share this story. And she was saying that at first she didn't want to share any information. She didn't want to be, she felt afraid that I want to be a real activist, but I'm so afraid that because even though she's so a, a Uyghur person herself, that's how she identifies she, all her life and her, her upbringing was in Beijing. Yeah. So she felt like, I just don't want to cause any harm. What if I'm being a bad activist? What if I do, you know, I, I do the other way around because she still has family in China. Yeah. Like she was so afraid that if I start talking and, you know, being more active about the Uyghur people. I'm so afraid that there are going to be any repercussions for with my family in China. So yeah. she was so afraid, but her dad told her, don't be afraid, you know, spread the word. And he even told her, start creating Facebook accounts, like Twitter accounts, be very present in social media. And the good thing is that as going back, that he was a very prominent scholar in yeah. the Minsu University in Beijing, he traveled all around the world. He was well-educated. He spoke many languages. So thanks to that, he was able to have very influence uh, friends around mm -hmm. his corner. Like he has friends that are, were political activists. He were all around the world. So those friends were able to help Jahar while she was in the States. Yeah. So thanks to that, she was able to be protected. Um, from what I read, she hasn't been able to say exactly how was she able to, you know, prevail in the States for fear that that could, you know, yeah. ha harm his, his father's family, uh, friends, sorry. But, um, yeah, like it's a really story of valor because she, can you imagine like, even though you're safe, you don't really know if your dad is alive and you don't mm -hmm. even know how your family's in China. Yeah, and there's no, no word coming no. out, and there's and any words that do come out are lies, so um, it must be terrifying to think about what could be happening back home. Yeah, it, it is terrifying because she was also saying that um, sh this hatred that the Chinese government is, you know, rooting in their people, because uh, people in Han China, which is the region that is close to Xinjiang, where uh, the vast majority of mm -hmm. Uyghur people live, they are, guess how are they, they are portraying Uyghur people as uh, thieves, pickpockets, yeah. uh, you know, like they, they that's literally how, it kind of reminds me of how Trump is t talking about Mexicans. They're yeah. rapists, they're like, you know, thieves, they're going to steal your jobs. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing they're doing in China, in China with these people. They, they think, oh yeah, they're, they're thieves. When yeah. in fact, it's a full flesh people with their culture and uh, they just want to live. They just want to yeah. have their own autonomy. But it's so aggressively secular that they are just being persecuted because of their religion. Yeah. So what, what, I mean, even the comparison they're doing at the moment is like, oh, it's, this is as worse as it was the Holocaust. So you know that when they put the word Holocaust, yeah. you know it's bad. Yeah, no, you it's know. definitely a genocide. Of it is. It is horrendous what they're doing. It is sad because like now the world 
China, China, it's a stage and the world is looking at what they're doing. Yeah. For many years, they were trying to, I think they have been doing this concentration because there's no other, I'm sorry, there's no better word that they are concentration yeah. camps. I think at the moment they have in captivity because again, it's captivity over 1 million of Uyghur people, yeah. men and women. And they are in this, they are like forcing them to labor, like yeah. forced labor. Um, they are, women are talking about the women. They are forcing them to have abortions, mm. like abortions or even U IUDs. Mm. Um, there were some, there's this other scholar, his name I think is um, Adrian Sense, and he was back, uh, he was recollecting stories for over six years for women who survived the camps. And he was saying that some of the, those women who were able either to, you know, escape or be or seek asylum, they didn't even know they were no longer, you know, able to have been pregnant. They've been forced. They've been forced. They, they didn't know. They didn't know. Like they will say they were recollections of stories, stories like, oh, they will make me have these injections or they will make me take this. They will do these examinations and they all of a sudden they no longer can have babies. Yeah. And it, it's awful like there's other stories about women that they were separated from their families and they weren't able to see their babies for like two years or, or longer wow. like being threatened being tortured there was this famous thing about that they call it a tiger chair where they like basically um tie them up it's like a metal chair and they will hit them there's this video right now going a bit more topical that uh, um I didn't see it on Instagram. They didn't put the video. God, no, I wouldn't be able to see it. That they are basically beating to death a six-year-old Muslim boy. Oh. Uh, they, they, even they're saying, we're not going to share that information, but uh, we just want you to know what's happening. And the thing is that they are bringing this fear and this hatred out of nowhere. Yeah. And this is going back to Jahar. Jahar saying that she has received so many death threats. People saying that she's a whore. Just, and, they, and she's saying, they don't know me. Yeah. They don't know who I am. My father is not violent. My father, she even says that I have never seen my father as a political activist. My father, he was just peacefully talking about his people, our people, and how we live. Because he was very prominent. Thank, like, thankfully, in a way, he had a voice. Yeah. But he was always conducting his voice and his information with peace and understanding and with diplomacy. And that's the only thing he wanted to do. And one of the things she was saying, can you imagine, my dad was only trying to promote peace and he was very peaceful. He was never leading to any ideology of separatism within China. He just wanted to be heard. Mm. And... Imagine what they will do for someone who wants to speak up strongly. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, you're going to, lots of people could end up with a lot of hate in their heart if they're being kept in concentration camps and, yeah. like, and they're still approaching it. It's a like, very it a strong person to do that. Absolutely. It's a very complicated subject. Yeah. I am not trying to, you know, explain everything. I just want to welcome people, listeners, to fact check to read to see what's happening because what is happening in those concentration camps to women specifically and even children is appalling they're separating their children they're re-educating them so what they're trying to do is erase their culture those concentration camps they're not only there for like implementing forced labor for them but at the same time they're trying to erase their culture forcing them to speak chinese forcing them to first of all they're muslims like the majority yeah. of them are muslims so if people don't know other, if if you're um, you know 
if you're Muslim, as far as I understand from what I have read, you don't eat pork and you don't drink alcohol. Well, these people are being forced to drink alcohol and eat pork. Yeah. They're literally erasing their beliefs and they're basically telling them day and night, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're contaminated because that's what they're saying, by the yeah. way. I'm not, I'm being verbatim. They think there's something wrong with them and they're trying to re-educate them forcefully. So it is awful and women are be beaten up. Like even if they take longer bathroom breaks, this is an interview from one, one who, yeah. a survivor, they will hit them in the head with uh, like uh, with a club, electri like electrified club. So they no longer like, uh, like stay longer in the bathroom. Um, I've heard a lot of stories uh, recently about the labor camps specifically. Yeah. Just because I was hearing about um, you know, there was international pressure on big brands yeah. whose clothes come from that area. Absolutely. Kind of either the cotton that makes their clothes or the mm -hmm. various materials that make their clothes yeah. from that area. Yeah. And some of them said that they sent people in to check and that the Uyghurs were like, no, we're fine. Everything's fine here because they were forced yeah, to say forced. everything was fine. And and, and the supervisor was, you know, was like, oh, everything's fine here. It's run as normal. Yeah. And they accepted that and they continued to yeah. profit off their labor. They are still profiting. Yeah. Um, I will go in, uh, I will go there in a, in a bit very briefly. But again, it's, oh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Not yeah. even, what not I'm even, saying yeah. is not even the tip of the iceberg. But it's just, it angers me to believe that this country is basically saying no there's no concentration camps but now i think just recently there has been like a, a, around over 183 documents that they were released from the yeah. chinese government saying how they live basically they are in lockdown literally mm. like in lockdown in constant surveillance cameras everywhere they need to see how they live they need to see if they're still doing their prayers like it is insane that's no way of living mm. and Right now, they were trying to say, oh, no, no, well, we're dismantling the camps. But yeah, you know what they're doing? Like, they're, this in air quotes, they're dismantling the camps, but because they're no longer in Xinjiang, they're forcing this, this, this people to, to, to flee the camps, but take them to another facility where they're forcing them in labor jobs. Yeah. So, just for you to know, I guarantee you that even us, like, without knowing, but now, again, we, I want to know, I want to educate myself, Pretty much everyone out there, unless you live in a cave, in a fucking cave, and you do your own clothing, and you do your own things, every single one of us have been using or having or buying things that are being done with forced labor. Yeah. And if, maybe if it's not by the hands of Uyghur people, it's definitely by the hands of Bangladesh children yeah. or Sri Lanka. But I'm not going to touch that. I'm not even going to scrape the surface with there. But what I can definitely tell you what you were saying about the brands are dead, right? There's an article that I was... It's an Australian organization that revealed that it's at least 83 major brands who are guilty of, you know, using, profiting from the labor from Uyghur people. So among those brands are Nike, Calvin Klein, Primark, which Primark is pennies. Yeah. So Nike, Calvin Klein, uh, Primark, uh, Inditex Group, which is Zara, H&M, yeah. uh, Siemens, LG, um, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Volkswagen, which by the way, the CEO, I think it's the CEO from Volkswagen, they interview him last year and say, are you aware that you're using, you know, you're still using the forced labor? And he was like, no, no, we're proud because we're bringing jobs, we're bringing jobs. No, you're actually still using forced labor. Oh, I'm not going to judge. 
It's yeah. not about judging. It's the fact that you are profiting out of forced labor. And I can go on and on, but basically there are a lot of brands out there that are using the, this yeah. force. And we cannot do the blind eye, blind, blind eye. I don't know about you, Trey. It's just, now that I know, it's just, it makes me rethink. First of all, I think you mentioned one day, we don't really need a lot of things, but it's just the capitalism that is enforcing you. The more you think you need things, so buy them. Yeah. So it's that, that whole idea of buying things and just because they're cheap, you want them. Mm -hmm. But how really you need them? When in fact, what are you, you're doing is first of all, they, those brands are profiting out of forced labor that you are purchasing. You yeah. are consuming that. But at the same time, the impact that they're doing in the environment is yeah. horrendous. So it's just so many things that they're doing. The Chinese government is trying to do a total blackout. They're trying not for you not to know. But now, now that we know, I feel it's really our responsibility to be more cautious of what we use. To be more cautious of all the information that we share, like yeah, it's the not information we share exactly. Absolutely. And you know, Jahar has her advocacy put any international pressure on them? Well, she just recently, like I said, she was in the Geneva conference, yeah. uh, speaking about her father. Yeah, she received, uh, you know, um, on behalf of its father, another. Uh, I think the this is a very prestigious uh, award in Europe. It's the Sakharov Award. Oh yeah, that she received in Strasbourg. So she has been everywhere she yeah. has been trying to be open she has even met trump she has met no but even she hasn't even met trump she has met before trump i think she met the secretary of state at that time in 2015 was it i think it was john Kerry. i could be i'm really yeah, bad with words so. but she has been meeting people from all around the world because she wants to spread the job she wants sorry she wants to spread the word and i'm just going to read uh, one of the last things about her speech uh what she was saying is that the time has come for all of us to find each other and unite in our demands for freedom. With that, I offer a few calls to action. Number one, preserve the United Nations missions to protect the human rights for all people. Stop allowing the Chinese government to politicize this to the institution. Second, protect multilateral organizations from the influence of authoritarian countries who are destroying the spirit of collaboration that these bodies are designed to deliver. Yeah. Look at the world of health organization and its relationship with China. And the reason why she's saying this is because right now she wants to be very vocal about the coronavirus because going back to these concentration um, camps, they are in very hardship conditions, inhumanely, mm -hmm. in, uh, on hygiene. So she's really afraid. They have... Oh, a million of these people captive and if one of them goes down as in if one of them contracts the they're gone like she said it's a widespread because they are not really being held you know with with proper conditions mm -hmm. and it's inhumane needless to say it's a total genocide what they're doing with the yeah. women like what they're doing with the women and forcing them to abortions that is genocide genocide mm -hmm. it's just horrendous what they're doing and i just wanted to bring again this story of this courageous, uh, very, uh, you know, brave woman, because she knows what it's at stake. She knows what yeah. could happen with her family, but she, she even says herself, I am my father's daughter. I'm Uyghur people. I, I am part of the Uyghur people. Yeah. And I just want to finish what she said about, um, one of her final notes in the, in the Geneva conference, she was saying through, through us over 1 million people detained in camps can be hurt. Let's tell our friends and everyone we know that what we heard today by stop buying things that are forced from forced labor camps 
How do you know where your product comes from? Supply chains are complicated. It's time we start asking questions. And if we don't know, we can figure it out together. Let's call on China to close the camps and release my father. Mm -hmm. And she says, my name is Jahar Ilam. I'm the daughter of Ilam Toti and the daughter of Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs need you. Aww. That's her story. Um, Thanks for sharing it. Yeah. It, they, it's, um, it takes a lot of courage to go out there and keep sharing the story as you said earlier if she doesn't know what the repercussions are going to be on her own family back home it's an absolute blackout with information yeah. so you just and you, like you don't know are you screaming into the void or not yeah. you know it's terrifying she doesn't know if her father is alive yeah it's so sad and and just like so many fathers there so many mothers there so yeah. many family and just it's a, an atrocity as you said yeah. what's happening there you know i wish her all the best yeah. on her journey and that's a good thing about her that she's very hopeful like even yeah. though she is having this harrowing life in a way that you know that she doesn't really know what's going on she's really positive that say i'm really hoping that it will come the day that he will be you know released and i just want him to be okay and i i'm still will always fight for him and mm -hmm. for my people and that's what's more important so on that note, I just want to, I think I'm, I'm happy with yeah. finishing with this. I am really happy I found out about her. I am really happy that we are, you know, being, trying to be knowledgeable, trying to know yeah. more about these people. And you know that, you know, it's not as simple, oh, I just buy this and it's fine. Like it's, it's more about being conscious within this day and age that we can just Google everything. We have the, yeah. the, the means to research We've all the information at our fingertips. It literally like. Yeah. It's just more conscious about what we need. Did you, uh, did you want to tell them about the cocktail and yes. its relation to yes. your woman? Because I got a bit carried away with hmm. my <laughs> with my topic and my woman as actually someone who wants to talk about this should be, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so from what I did in, on my research, Uyghur people, not, they don't really drink alcohol. There is a certain type of... A Chinese liquor that they will drink whoever wish to drink from in their culture however the reason why I picked this cocktail is because um, they love their fruits they love their their fruits and they have from what I read they have a very diverse um, cuisine in a way and mm -hmm. one of them is melon it's from um, from what I uh, research in, during summertime they're obsessed they love their melon and uh, among other fruits so I thought well we're in during the summer so well the end of the summer so uh, that's why I decided why don't we bring a summer cocktail a melon cocktail so that's why I you can drink this as I said with or without the alcohol in this case it, the alcohol will be gin but you can really you know have it as a mocktail it's it's really it is sweet, but yeah. I like melon. I think Me it's too. very refreshing and mm -hmm. very sweet. But um, I just can't like with, with the with the sparkling water and everything. Oh, it's and the lovely. mint. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. so like actually, my palate is cleansed. So we've we've had cake already. So I feel like I can yeah. have more cake after this. Yeah. Hi everyone, we're back from our break. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story of yeah. Jahar. I thought she was a very inspiring She's very brave, person. isn't she? Yeah. And um I do I do hope that she hears more about her father soon. Yeah. And uh, I will follow follow her journey more as well and um obviously look more into the Uyghur issue. Yeah. 
issue. Issue is not even the word that could no. possibly cover it. But like I said before, I'm just literally like even scraping a bit of the surface. It's just, yeah. just the tip of the little teensy tip of the iceberg yeah. to what really is happening. And but we encourage you to research definitely. yourselves to go ahead. Um, and we will share all the information. Yeah, like, you know, we will share everything, all the footnotes from what I have researched. The videos, her speech, even uh, even if you only want to, like for people who know who John Oliver is, he did an amazing job just summarizing the political issues that is happening with the Uyghur people. And mm -hmm. you know his show uh, yeah. last week, I think it's called Last Week Tonight. So even if you just want to, you know, watch John Oliver for 20 minutes, he summarizes really well. So, yeah. but I still, I will share all my footnotes. So, but anyway, yeah. uh, without any further ado, Trey, I'm really excited. I cannot wait to hear about your woman. Yeah. So I'm, uh, you as I say, who you bringing? Who you bringing? Who is she? <laughs> Tell us about her. Yeah. Tell her story. Okay, then yeah. I, I will. No, so um, I said to Priya, so do you mind if I do someone, do someone from the past? Mm -hmm. And Priscilla was like, actually, I want to do someone from the present. So it worked out really well for this episode. And this is our 10th episode. So it's kind of special to us. We're here in person together. So, and we're really enjoying doing the podcast. And we really enjoy knowing you're all out there listening. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. And I said, oh, I kind of want to do this. I want to talk about this person when we first started talking about doing the podcast. And I'd also like to dedicate my half of this episode to my dad because I like mm. this person, um, like he would have, I would have known about her through him. Um, I'm today I will talk about a Cuban revolutionary who was a feminist and a chemical engineer as well. And um, I kind of, in my house, dad always said, a woman's place is in the revolution. Um, well so, said. Yeah. Now, we did have some arguments because I believe a woman's place wherever she wants to be. That's but uh, but yeah, like I grew up in a house being told about strong women um, in coming them on and different strong women uh, mm -hmm. throughout, the, uh, throughout our history, throughout Irish history. And I definitely would know about so uh, socialist and communist causes around the world as well. Um, and so today I'm going to talk about Vilma Espin, which mm -hmm. she died at age 77 in 2007. And as I said before, she was, uh, a, she is a, was a Cuban revolutionary. And, uh, so she was an idealistic socialite. She yeah. was, uh, she fought alongside Fidel and Raul Castro in the mountains of Cuba. Wow. Uh, she be became Raul Castro's wife, but, you know, her mm -hmm. own person, but also yeah. his wife. Yeah. Then she became a prominent advocate of women's rights and she became a powerful member of the Cuban Communist Party. So uh, she's known as one of the most relevant fighters for women's emancipation in Cuba as well. Wow. So she had an active role in the Julio 26 movement as an underground spy. Thought you'd like that, Priscilla. Yeah. You love an L underground spy. I love my spies. Um, then after the revolution, she had an active role in various branches of the Cuban government uh, up to her death. And mm -hmm. she also helped found the Federation of Cuban Women um, in the in the, the 60s and promoted equal rights for Cuban women in all spheres of life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's funny because she doesn't really have the international fame of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. You know the way you see yeah. their images 
everywhere. You know, the Che Guevara yes. image is on everywhere. Every, Even in here, yeah. you can see him. Like it's it's, it's so everywhere. easy. Yeah. And if I if I say Fidel Castro to you, you just think of him in his uniform, smoking the cigar, a cigar, yeah, and the hat. Yeah. You know? And uh, but her image, her image is very iconic, and she was a revered figure of the revolution in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And the image of her and several other prominent women shouldering rifles and wearing combat fatigues during the rebel war helped change attitudes about kind of the role of women in Mm -hmm. Cuba. So in terms of her life, so she she essentially left a very comfortable life to fight alongside Fidel Castro against the US-backed government of Batista. So she was born in Santiago de Cuba in 1930. Her dad was a wealthy Cuban lawyer for the Bacardi Rome Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, you know, grew up in religious schools and secular instruction. And she studied ballet and singing. And then she went on and studied chemical engineering. Um, uh, at the university and she was probably if not the first one of the first women to do so mm-hmm. and then after graduating her dad encouraged her to attend MIT in the US oh, wow. uh, for her postgraduate studies because he thought visiting America would dissuade her from becoming a socialist <laughs> but when she finally agreed her brief academic time in the States left her with more animosity toward the United States <laughs> and that's when she officially joined the 26th of July movement on her way back to Cuba through Mexico. Oh, very good. <laughs> so, um, uh, so as people probably know, the 26th of July movement successfully overthrew the dictator Batista. So if people yeah. don't know or don't know, I know um, whether you're pro-Castro against... Like, it's, it's going to be a very... Uh, people have very strong feelings about um, him and his government. Yes. But... Um, at the same time, you know, what they achieved over there against dictator Batista is unbelievable. And it's um, so he was receiving financial, military and logistical support from the United States. And uh, he suspended like the Constitution, revoked political liberties, mm-hmm. including the right to strike. He aligned with the wealthy landowners uh, yeah. who owned the largest sugar plantations and presided over a pretty much a stagnating economy um, that widened the gap between the rich and the poor. Mm. And uh, eventually it reached a point where most of the sugar industry was in U.S. hands and foreigners owned like 70% of the land. So as such, Batista's Batista's repressive government, they were basically systematically profiting from the exploitation of Cubans' commercial interests. And they negotiated lucrative relationships with the American mafia and they who control drug gambling prostitution businesses in Havana mm-hmm. and large US based multinational companies were, you know, got lucrative contracts yeah. and stuff like that. You know, that kind of um that that type of thing. And so like there were a lot of student riots and demonstrations about this. So then Batiste established tighter censorship of the media and used the Bureau for the Repression of Communist Activity, Secret Police to carry out wide-scale violence, torture, and public executions. Mm-hmm. So this was Cuba under Batista at the time. So uh, for the Julio 26 movement, for two years, um, they were the nationalist rebelling elements, mm-hmm. and they led kind of like an urban and rural-based guerrilla uprising against Batista's government. Yeah. And it culminated in his eventual defeat by the rebels under the command of Che Guevara at the Battle of Santa Clara. Most people know that story anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of Vilma, so she was, during university, um, the strong presence of the United States in Cuba really struck her. And in her own mind, she began to link kind of Yankee imperialism with mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Batista dictatorship. Yeah. Now, again, she was 
very idealistic. She was in college, her mind was open, she yeah. was very idealistic and she had a very... She was gaining knowledge as yeah, well. Yeah, she was yeah. gaining knowledge and she still had that kind of, um, you, you know, it, it, all she could see was that there was a problem in Cuba. It needed to be freed. Yeah. It was Batista and imperialism. She didn't know how to phrase it. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't reading Marxist ideology at the yeah. time. She yeah. eventually did. Mm-hmm. But all she could see was there was a problem in Cuba. Cuba needed to be freed. There was a tyranny. Yeah. And um, so it was Batista and imperialism. Mm-hmm. So while she was entertaining her idealistic notions, her younger sister, Nilsa, was already working with the political activist Frank Pace, who would establish the anti-Batista movement in Santiago. And then Vilma came along and joined the action group. So there was a lot of like protests, manifestos, proclamations, marches and confrontations with the police. We've mm-hmm. seen that happening now. Yeah. Um, we know that that's what happens. And um, so on July 26th, there was violence in Santiago. Fidel Castro led an attack on a military barracks. And he he wasn't really known at the time, but his actions there won him the sympathy and admiration of people, even though the attack was disastrous and the rebels who yeah. were not killed were tortured to death or jailed. Oh my God. And so, but the slaughter of these people in essence kind of radicalized Santiago at the time. And then Espin herself had said herself that she his impassioned speech at his trial um, in defense of his attack kind of redirected the youth of Santiago. They like, and at the time she was in college and she said, we began to see things differently and Fidel took over his position of leader of all who took up of the struggle mm-hmm. all over the island. Mm-hmm. But then he was jailed and Batista was, you know, was pleased because he was confident that the rebellion had been stilled. Yeah. So in the meantime, Vilma heads over to MIT where she studies architecture and in the US, she learned about the oppression of the poor and of black people. And she started reading Marx at the mm-hmm. MIT library. Yeah. So when she returned home to Cuba, she did so via Mexico. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in case Fidel's people wanted me to carry something into the country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was given messages that she delivered in Santiago. And from that point on, she was really engaged in the struggle. She met the Castro brothers who had relocated to Mexico after. So they had their failed arm attack. They went yeah. to jail. And they were released from prison in 1955. And she was at the time acting as a messenger between the movement in Mexico and Pays back in Cuba. Wow. So in 1956, she was in Santiago. She joined with the political leader and she actually began to build the infrastructure for the 26th of July movement. So as the revolution against Batista deepened uh, in the late 1950s, um, she helped set up an effective network of watchers and safe houses. Mm -hmm. And she helped organise and participated in an armed uprising in November of 1956 to coincide with the landing of armed rebels under Fidel Castro. And her house was the headquarters of the operations of the uprising and medical facilities and personnel were in place to support Fidel's landing. Um, and his expeditionaries from Mexico. Um, the invasion, again, was a disaster. <laughs> and uh, Castro and a handful of survivors barely escaped into the, uh, into the Sierra uh, Oriente province um, and Espin narrowly evaded capture. Mm-hmm. So she then went on, again, she went on. She uh, assisted the revolutionaries in the mountains after the 26th of July's movements returned to Cuba. Um, in 1956 and when they were when the underground in Santiago needed rest they were sent to Sierra to carry messages to Castro 
And on one, on one occasion, she, I believe she used her education as a chemical engineer to construct a napalm bomb. Oh my God. Um, so it was in the mountains that she first met Fidel and then later his brother Raul. So she joined the armed rebels uh, there and fought, fought alongside Raul under her nom de guerre, Deborah. Wow. So Raul had established a second front and during that period, um, Espine realised she couldn't go back to Santiago. Santiago because she was now be, they, were, they were now actively searching for her mm-hmm. and so she remained in Sierra with the second front until the end of the revolution so she created along with so many other things kind of the administrative network responsible for the maintenance of the 11 hospitals and dispensaries and the 100 schools that were staffed by the personnel yeah. so she was a founder and a leader in this movement and she also established all these networks these schools um, um, she was keeping herself busy. Oh my gosh! Like, you that. And she also she was able to speak Spanish and English, so allowed mm-hmm. her to represent the kind of revolutionary mo- movement on an international scale. Yeah. So she acted as an interpreter for interviews and um, sat in on meetings with CIA. She was stuff trying like that. to build a bridge. If you think about yeah. that, yeah. So um, also at one point, Batista was saying like Castro's was dead, and she was able to say he's not. She's alive mm-hmm, and well, mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. So. So then she became, 1958, she became Raoul's secretary and served as a translator. And um, then, and the journalists were kind of on their way into Sierra to interview the rebels. So mm-hmm. she, uh, she took part in that. And so in 1959, she planned to lead a Cuban delegation to the Chilean Congress of the Rights of Women and Children. Yeah. And as she prepared, she realized that there were limited organized opportunities that existed for women in Cuba. Okay. So uh, there are small groups of women whose focus was politics while others were devoted to social action and a lot of these organisations were found by upper class women or within the Catholic Church but there was no strong feminist organisation in Cuba itself. Yeah. So um, that's where she started to create the um, Federation of Cuban Women mm-hmm. um, in 1960. So she was an outspoken supporter of gender equality in Cuba and her involvement in the revolution helped transform the role of women in Cuba. And so she became the president of the Federation of Cuban Women and remained in that position until her death. Um, the organization's primary goals were educating women, giving them the necessary skills to seek gainful employment and encouraging them to participate in politics and support the revolutionary Did government. she stay in Cuba to her last days? Yeah. Then? Okay. Yeah. So in 1960, when the sugar mills and cane fields were under attack, the Federation of Cuban Women created the Emergency Medical Response Brigades and mobilized women against this counter-revolution. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, this whole idea, obviously the Cuban government and kind of the federation, it was encouraging women to join the labour force and uh, they even passed the Cuban Family Code in 1975, a law mandating that men must help with household chores mm-hmm. and childcare to lighten the workload for working mothers. So obviously in their, in this under this communist rule, yeah. uh, women need to take part, they need to be part of the labour, they need to take part and they need it's, to do their civic duty. They their need duty. to be equal basically. Yeah. So household servants were retrained for meaningful jobs. Thousands of rural women were trained as seamstresses. Women received first aid instructions and were provided with daycare centres. And they worked through the public health ministry to promote a greater awareness of personal hygiene and pre and postnatal care. Mm -hmm. As we were kind of talking about before when I was talking about uh, Rosemary before. And uh, yes. Espine stated in uh, 1962, the ideal new woman is a healthy woman, mother of the future generations who will grow mm. up under communism. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so like they, they dealt with women workers in Cuba's factories, mm-hmm. stuff like that. They reached out. 
So um, also, as well as being president of the Federation of Cuban Women, Federación Mujeres Cubanas. Federación de Mujeres Cubanas. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> she also worked as a chemical engineer for the food industry ministry, and she kind of, you know, she met visiting delegations of foreign women. Mm-hmm. She she's because Fidel didn't have a first lady, so to speak. She yeah. she as a sister in law, be kind kind of became the first lady of Cuba. You know, okay. acted in that capacity, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, there's a lot of um. There was a lot of problems in Cuba with in terms of discrimin gender discrimination. Yeah. And like when there was a problem with unemployment, um, you know, there was a a, a law passed that prohibited women from j- jobs, certain job categories because there was unemployment. So they wanted men to have those jobs. Um, even oh. though they said it was cause of health hazards, that kind of thing, you yeah. know, um, but she, she fought hard against this resolution and you know, the list of 300 jobs finally got cut to like 25. And um, she like there was a lot of discrimination still there, but her position on women and employment, um, you know, uh, she said it's it, a violation of the principle of equality. Yes. So um, the battle for equality was hard fought in a lot of areas. And she her big thing was that childcare and household duties were shared. And she's like, if we use the term help, we are accepting that these women's responsibilities and such is not the case. We say share because they are family responsibility. <clears throat> so, you know, women pretty much absent from, um, you know, the government, but uh, even though Espeen was promoted, but, um, you know, um, women have made inroads, but uh, the pace has been a bit slow. But even her daughter now um, is the head of the Ministry for Sex Education in Cuba. Okay. And, um, you know, and is head of the LGBTQI plus movement over oh, there. So, very good. you know, things are moving quite yeah, ahead. They're changing so, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, Vilma was very much known for the Federation of Cuban Women. Like, I like I liked looking into her role in the revolution. I thought that was very interesting because as I was looking back over in photos, I realised all these photos of Che and Fidel and everything, she's in them. You just, mm-hmm. you're automatically, you just know who Shay is, you know who mm-hmm. Fidel is, you yeah. know who Raul is. But she's in all these photos, she's mm-hmm. right beside them, she is wearing her uniform, she's carrying her rifle over yeah. her shoulder, you know. And, you just don't see her and she was, because you're yeah. so focused yeah. on seeing the other guys, And I couldn't yeah. believe it that I, like, I had fallen for that same thing, you know. Yeah. And I'd been to Cuba, I visited these places where the revolution was successful and yeah. I went to Santa Clara, I went to all these different places and... You know, you know, I even though I knew of her, it was never t- in my head. It was she was never f- to the front, you know. Whereas she's clearly there. She, but she's just, and she's visible when you look for her, essentially. Yeah. Um, now that being said, as I said before, in Cuba she is revered. <laughs> like, she has mm-hmm. her own holiday. She has a school named after her and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of like from what I've heard as well. You know, she always had her kind of upper class kind of roots like even when she was wearing her uniform it was probably tailor made <laughs> you know she would still put lipstick on when they yeah. were being bombed and stuff like that so there was a, there's definitely a lot of nuance to her character that mm-hmm. you know with the communist propaganda and stuff you probably don't see but yeah. um, you know she, they were like she's it's a strong it's kind of like a juxtaposition if yeah, you think about yeah, it yeah it is considering they're like they're promoting and they're fighting for communism in their government Mm. Correct, and and here you see her being all poison from the family for her yeah. upbringing. And like as I said, her dad was um big with the Bacardi Rum Company, which she actually used those contacts contacts to her advantage later, yeah. um on with when they were um talking to the CIA and to mm-hmm. other American 
things were over there and she was like, no, they're not communists. What are you talking about? (laughs) But also, like, in fairness, she was doing... She did what she believed was right, sorry. But she knew as well that there was still gaps in her knowledge. And, like, even Fidel was like, I wanted to teach in these schools, you know. But she was like, well, I don't fully know communism. I need to go and, you know, look into this, research it. Yeah. But I also, you know, she actually focused more on previous leaders and how you know um you know values that she shared with them and she taught those in school so like mm. you know there's a lot of interesting so it's not as black and white as as you see out there she was a very interesting person she was a very strong person she was very got, complex as yeah, well in, yeah. the, in a good way yeah you in know? a very good way and like i mean she was pretty much a leader in the revolution mm. and um you know uh what she managed to achieve you know, considering what they what they all managed to achieve yeah. in Cuba, and um, you know, is uh, you know, she was a huge part in that, and I just think that she should be recognised for that. Definitely. And um, she, you know, an idealistic young socialite in the middle of college, and you know, she actually followed and followed up on what she believed yeah. and, and carried carried it through. So, um, which she didn't have to, you know, she could have just doing what we all do as well just sit in yeah. college debating this every day and not do anything about it so yeah. just carry yeah. on with her life and yeah. have a comfortable life yeah, yeah. but she went into the mountains she went otherwise yeah. she went into Mexico <laughs> I like those stories of women and bringing back you remember when I was talking about the women in the Soviet Union yeah. like we don't know about those stories yeah. like we don't know because they only want to bring they only want to talk about the men who regardless of what side you are they want to talk about the men who fought in the revolution, mm. or they fought in war, they did ama- amazing things, they fought for what they believe. But what about the women? Yeah. The women play a huge deal in that. Vilma is an example. Yeah. And so does the other women who fought in World War Two and among other wars. And yeah. we don't we don't hear about that. So definitely, like, 150% agree with you. Like, yeah. we should talk more about those stories, and that's incredible. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed her story. I really enjoyed she her journey. She sounds very accomplished, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it was very, yeah, it was very interesting. And also because as well, she because she became such a revered person, they use her, like they essentially use her image and use her person, you know, because she was the sister in law of Fidel Castro. She was married to his brother. She was the first lady of Cuba, and they mm-hmm. were like, as a, as a woman. You know, you need to do this for your country. Look at what she did. And she's such a shining example for them. Mm-hmm. And like she was put on this pedestal. Yeah. And and she she did accomplish all the things she, they said she accomplished. Mm-hmm. But she and she was happy for, you know, her image to be used in that way. She was glad. But it, it is it is interesting to know that there was a real person behind it. Yeah. And, um, you know, who thoroughly believed in all of this and had a very, very big hand in not just yeah. the revolution itself, but the government yeah. afterwards. And I really liked what she did with uh, the Federation of Cuban Women. I think she, she achieved a lot Definitely. there. Definitely. And um, well, look, I wish her like daughters saying, all the best as well. Exactly. I was just going to say that, look what her daughter is trying to accomplish in, yeah. in, in this 21st century. And it, it's, it's amazing. And if she is like her mother's daughter, I'm, yeah. I'm sure she's going to accomplish and hopefully she will. Yeah. yeah, she's a very she's very interesting as well. I was looking at interviews, listened to interviews with her, and you know it's it must be very mad to be the daughter of, you know, Vilma Espin and and uh, Raúl Castro, who was the president of Cuba yeah. when Fidel handed it over to Raúl, and now he's still the first Secretary of State or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but so he still has more power than the president. So to have to be the daughter of those two, 
a dynamic yeah. duo um and, yeah. and to achieve what she's achieved yeah. as well it's it's um and and to be so involved with people and and you know how they live their lives every day is is interesting and um i look forward to hearing more about her as well mm. and i will share some notes on her as well and um yeah i just think she's Vilma, I really do want to say that, you know, very, very, what she achieved is incredible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we should hear more stories about women revolutionaries. Yes, Um, please, we have to. And we will do more. I will do more. Yeah, me too. And, uh, I love Victoria's the Emperor. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, here's to, here's to Vilma Espeen and here's to... Yeah, to Jahar. Yeah, cheers to them. Cheers. Oh, we actually clinked this time. Yeah, we can clink this time. fake cheers to the screen. Yeah. Mm. What I do every time that we try to cheers, I'm like cheers, yeah. click, and I try to click with my finger, <laughs> yeah, like, just to click make click. the sound effect. <laughs> yeah, but now we're like physically cheering. So yeah, it's great. You know, from an appropriate distance. Thank you so much for bringing her to the table. She definitely sounds amazing, and these are the type of stories, especially you know me, women in war. <laughs> yes, my, I knew you. One of my would be pricked up. <laughs> one of my favorite topics, but it's just. This is the type of stories I want to hear because, uh, like, people need to know more about this. Like, it's not about, it's just not one color. Remember, we're also talking about it's just one, not one color. When you bring more women or other genders, you can see a whole different color, whole different taste, whole different everything. And that's the thing I like uh, the most about our conversations. And, yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing Mm. her. She sounds amazing. And I can all, you know, I look forward to see more of the information that you're going to share. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to talk about her. And hi, Dad. Um, he listens. <laughs> he'll so, be happy. <laughs> yeah, he listens. And he'll be glad to hear that I will do more women revolutionaries as well. Um, you know, I love hearing stories about that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I Although I agree. I, li- I like what you said when you were mentioning your dad. And you and your dad was saying that, oh, women uh, belong in the revolution. Is, mm. Isn't that what he mm. said? I agree, like, women should belong wherever they want to belong, but I really like what he... Yeah, in women's places. Exactly. Yeah. Like, in any revolution, I guess, that would be the right way to put it. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I think, yeah, I'm happy to, to call that the episode on those two fantastic women. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy as well. Um, so, we have been the Fantastic Women and Where to Find Them podcast. Yes. And we are available across many social media platforms. If you want to holler at us, if you want to follow, subscribe. Um, you can hear yes. us on, you can listen to us on any of your, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. Um, we are available across most of them. And if we're not available on yours, let us know. Um, we Very will, important. We will get ourselves out there. Um, uh, we have a Facebook page Fantastic Women and Where to Find Them podcast we have an Instagram page Fantastic Women pod we have an email address mm-hmm. so please do get on to us if there's anything you want to ask fact check anything you want to tell us about a fantastic woman you know about um, and that's fantasticwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we are we would love to hear from you so do let us know uh, we please to, yeah. yes and uh, just do you like the stories? Do you not? Do you wish we'd do something else? 
Um, is there any woman you would yeah. like us to, you know, share this the story? We're more yeah, than happy to. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. um, we really enjoy bringing these stories to you. They're, we do. they're always just like they're just basically touching the surface of these women. We could like we could not do them justice in an hour, but yeah. hopefully just sharing their lives and encouraging you to. What we want at the end of the day is for you to be curious you know what yeah. to, to for you to say hmm I want to listen more about that woman or I want to yeah. read more about that woman that's that's all we want yeah we want you to like even though like you will only know like I just said a moment ago we're just scrap you know scraping the surface yeah. but that only means that we want to share you what we know we want to share all our resources so you can like find out more about them yeah. that's all what we want like this yeah. is for pure entertainment pure education and pure um Empowerment, feminist empowerment, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And cocktails. And cocktails. Oh, yeah. Most um, important part yeah. spelled cocktails. Delicious melon cocktails. Mm -hmm. So, thank you for listening. Um, this has been our 10th episode. We look forward to bringing our 11th episode to you. Yeah, where Trey's going to be on cocktail duty. Yeah, and, you know, I'll send the ingredients to Priscilla and then we'll have to snap pictures. Whereas today, we actually just made it together. Yeah, this <laughs> which was, was fun. nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. like we, we, they were the exact same cocktail. Yeah. Um, so, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. On that note, we'll see you in the next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.